Well, welcome everybody to the Grace Church at Franklin Services on Sunday morning. We're expecting a lot more folks in today. Perhaps the weather has pushed people around a little bit and we've got some things going on in downtown Franklin. In fact, our song leader will not be here today because he has to work. Uh, he's in the donut business and they're furnishing donuts down there. So he's not going to be here to lead singing. So you'll have to put up with me. We want to welcome all of you who are tuning in by the internet. We are located at 4052 Arno Road in Franklin, Tennessee, just minutes south of Nashville. And if you're in the Nashville, Tennessee area, we hope you'll come out and worship with us. We worship on Sunday mornings at 1045. We have Bible classes at 10. And we also have a Bible study on Tuesday evening at 6. 45. We'd be glad to have you in any or all of those classes and worship times. We'd like to begin our services with the reading of God's Word in a word of prayer. Brother Larry McKnight is going to come and do that for us. Thank you, my pastor. I want to read this morning from Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. I woke up this morning in a banner on my cell phone, had a map of this place, and it said it was a significant location. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I know in, uh, when I was a young Christian quite a while ago, uh, the first time I heard of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 was from the sitting president of the United States of America. So I guess that's quite a while ago. I, I, I would put it probably at 1975 or 1976. Proverbs chapter 3, my son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. and Lean not in thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new vine. Wisdom is dealing with fact, not feeling. Let's pray together, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's where we learn about thee. We pray that you would bless us this day as we come to you as the called out ones. 
And help us, Lord, like you say in Philippians, that uh, in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, to make our requests made known to you, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we do pray that you would be with us this day, be with our singing, with the communications, with our pastor, Lord. Please give him your spirit to give us a message straight from heaven. Help us to be wise and help us, Lord, as we think about those people who are in our congregation and other people who need you so badly, Lord. Help us to make our requests made known to you and, Lord, to trust in you that your will will be done. And that's what we want. Not our will, Lord, but yours to be done. And this we pray, our Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, Joshua Waltz is not here today to lead us in singing. And uh, so you'll have to put up with me. We're going to... Uh, ask you to stand on this first song. It'll be Tell It to Jesus 347. 347. Are you weary? Are you heavy hearted? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Are you Tell it to Jesus alone. Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. He is a friend that's well known. You've no other such a friend or brother. Tell it to Jesus alone. Do the tears flow down your cheeks unbidden Tell it to Jesus Tell it to Jesus Have you sins that two men's eyes are hidden Tell it to Jesus alone Tell it to Jesus Tell it to Jesus He is a friend that's well known a friend or brother tell it to Jesus alone do you fear the gathering clouds of sorrow tell it to Jesus tell it to Jesus are you anxious what shall be tomorrow tell it to Jesus alone tell it to Jesus Tell it to Jesus 
a friend, a brother, held it to Jesus alone. Fine, you may be seated. What did I say last week that ran everybody off? My goodness alive, I hope that some more will be coming in here at 11. A lot of folks have been uh, been sick. I was under the weather this week myself, and the doctor put me on some antibiotics. I want to say to all of you, I don't have anything that's contagious, but uh, uh, I feel a lot better today and glad at least I can have enough voice to lead the singing. Let's pay attention to those who are not here today and be sure and give them a call. Let them know that we missed them. I do know that Shirley Murphy has been very sick. And uh, Betty, is Betty here today? Yeah, Betty Hethcock is here. She's not in here at the moment, but she's been ill. Uh, some of this coronavirus is coming back up in other strains, so you're going to have to be careful. Don't let your guard down just, just yet. All right, let's try uh, Victory in Jesus, 496, 496. I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory How he gave his life on Calvary To save a wretch like me I heard about his groaning Of his precious blood's atoning Then I repented of my sin and Wonder victory, oh victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He's bought me and bought me with His redeeming blood, and He loved me. I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me. the lame to walk again and cause the blind to see and then I cried did Jesus come and heal my broken spirit and somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory oh victory in Jesus my Savior he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood And he loved me, I knew him And all my love is new He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood I heard about a mansion has built for me in glory and I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea about the angels singing and the old redemption story 
about some of the choruses that we do. For those of you, David, you're visiting, we are Neanderthalian church. We still sing those old hymns. But we also sing some of the newer choruses too. But I just selected the hymns today. I don't think they can write them like that anymore. Uh, they're biblical. Most of them are. We have some announcements today. Brother Turner, you're going to make those? Okay. Well, good morning, Grace Church. Good to see you. I'd like to welcome each one of you this morning, as well as all of our visitors. We're glad to have visitors always. And for those who are joining us by internet, we extend a welcome to you as well. We have been studying, when I teach in Sunday school, the little book of 1 John. And as we sang that hymn, it reminded me of 1 John 5, verse 4. Whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So, and that faith is not ours, it's a gift of God. Well, we want to share some of the prayer requests with you. We want to continue to pray for uh, Pastor, as he mentioned, has not been feeling well this uh this past week, and also for Todd Horton, who's not feeling well. He's the one that usually would be here making the announcements, and uh, so that's the reason I'm here. But we want to remember both of them. Also, Terry Rayburn, who is battling cancer and is in critical condition. Let's beseech the Lord on his behalf. Also want to continue to pray for Tom and Marilyn Prince, They've been ill. Uh, Marilyn seems to be recovering, but now Tom, of course, is suffering what Marilyn had, so it's running its course there, so let's pray for them. Also want to remember uh, Wendy Smith's mother, her name is Joyce, who has been admitted to Centennial Hospital in Nashville with blood clots in her lungs and heart. She is uh, 81 years young, so she has some health problems. Let's remember her. Also want to remember, I uh, don't see him here this morning, to continue to remember our brother Ed Adamowitz and uh, praise the Lord for his mercy toward Ed. Also remember Howie Smith for his medical issues as he serves in the military. Also, as pastors mentioned, we want to remember Shirley Murphy and Marie Dalton and Sue Martin. We're glad she's able to be here and play. Also want to uh, remember David Simmons, who has kidney cancer, and Shannon Hazelwood's stepfather, Clyde Perrigan, for health problems. And have a word 
to share with you a reminder, an invitation to make plans to join us for a Christmas celebration covered fellowship meal. It's on Saturday, December the 16th from five to eight here at the church. I don't know if they want you to know what's going on or not, but I happened to overhear a conversation where there's just gonna be some singing and could be some games, some entertainment, as well as a meal. Come and join us. We need fellowship. God created us as a social people, and we need to have some interaction with people. Come and join with us, December the 16th. Also would like to uh, remind you of the Tuesday evening uh, Bible studies that we have. Tuesday evenings at 645, uh, we have the weekly Bible study. Uh, don't be offended, brother. He starts at 645 and he stops at 730. Now the man can do that on Tuesday nights. <laughs> so come and meet with us. On Tuesday evenings, we've been looking at uh, Islam, which is a growing threat today in the world. And uh, I didn't get a chance to look at it this morning. Dr. Foster put an article on, the, on my desk that says that the Korean people are calling upon their population to have more children. I pointed out to you Tuesday evenings that no civilization that uh, has below, uh, I think it was 2.9, 2.11 children per family can survive. Islam has an average of eight children per family, growing exponentially throughout the world. I don't know if you've, some of you have been up in Michigan, which I have, Dearborn, Michigan is probably 80% or above Islamic. And uh, so they will be able to vote in, they will be able to use the very laws uh, that give them freedom to vote out the freedoms that we've enjoyed for over 200 years. Uh, so this is what we've been studying on Tuesday evening. May have one more study on that subject and then moving on to something else. We're going to sing one more hymn this morning and that is, uh, we're marching to Zion. Have you ever, how many of you have heard that hymn? I wanna, <laughs> uh, it's page 514, it should be up on the board. Come ye that love the Lord and let the joy be known. We'll live to the day the chord join in a song with sweet accord. And then surround the throne and thus surround the throne. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to the beautiful city of God. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. 
But children of the heavenly king, but children of the heavenly king may speak. Their joys abroad may speak, their joys abroad. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. The hills of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets. Before we reach the heavenly fields, before we reach the heavenly fields, or walk the golden streets, or walk the golden streets, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Then let our songs abound and every tear be dry We're marching through Emmanuel's land We're marching through Emmanuel's land Error world's on high Error world's on high We're marching to Zion Beautiful, beautiful Zion We're marching upward to Some of you did know that song. Why don't you stand together with me now, and if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, you should find a pew Bible near you, and you can use that Bible if you would like. Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to read some passages of Scripture those of you who are worshiping here with us know that we've departed from our long-standing study of Joseph, the story of Joseph, and today we'll be study number six on the return of the Messiah, the return of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus went out and he departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, Do you see all of these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign thy coming and of the end of the world or the end of the age? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and we will sing our little song of asking the Lord to intervene. Father, I stretch my hand to thee. Oh, Myself from thee, a winner shall I go. 
May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word and let God's people say praise the Lord and you may be seated. Microphone. All right. This is the second study from last week on the temple. So this is a part two on the temple from uh, study five. Now, if you have missed any of these studies and you'd like to have them, we make them available on CDs. There's no charge for the CDs, or you can get DVDs. Uh, all you have to do when you're leaving today is fill out a slip back there, and it'll be ready for you the next time you come here to uh, worship with us. Or if you uh, prefer, we can mail it to you. But there's no charge. The, we think it's uh, not a good thing. And I'll have something more to say about that today. To say, well, God has given me a message. And you can have it for $25. You just send me $25 and I'll tell you what God told me. And we don't sell the gospel. We don't sell the Word of God. Let's review from last week. Now, this is our second study, as I said, regarding the temple. The temple was the center of life for Israel. Uh, Jesus was himself often in the temple teaching and healing. But as we learned in our last study, this time when he's in the temple, it's different. This time is a momentous occasion, especially as it relates to the future of Israel. And why is this? There are three reasons. First, because this is the very last time that Jesus will be there. Now, if you have your Bibles open in Matthew chapter 23, the chapter just before where we read, you notice in verse 39, Jesus said, You shall not see me again until you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So this is the last time that our Lord Jesus will be in the temple. Secondly, it's a momentous occasion because there won't be a temple for him or anyone else to come to. As we just read in the first two verses of Matthew chapter 24, he said, Do you see all of these things? I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another that will not be thrown down. Uh, and of course, I'll tell you about that again as we review. The third reason this is a momentous occasion is because Jerusalem itself will be destroyed. If you look in the 38th verse of chapter 23, he says to Jerusalem, your house is left unto you desolate. You notice in the 37th verse, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered thee together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Your house, therefore, is left unto you Desolate. So this is a momentous occasion because this is the very last time Jesus will be there because, number two, there won't be a temple there for him or for anyone else to come to, and number three, because Jerusalem itself will be 
destroyed. This word that's translated desolate, oemos, means an uncultivated area fit only for a pastor. Sometimes translated wilderness, in fact, is translated wilderness 32 times. So Jesus declares to the Jews that both their Jewish house, which is Jerusalem, and their spiritual house, which is the temple, will be destroyed. Now, still reviewing from last week, the original temple was called the first temple, and it was built by Solomon, and it was completed in 957 B.C., almost a thousand years before the Lord Jesus was born. That first temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, but 513 years later, it was rebuilt by a servant of the Lord named Nehemiah. You have a book in the Bible called Nehemiah. You have another book called Haggai, and you have one called Ezra. And those three books are about that second temple. It was called the second temple. 424 years later, or about 20 years before our Lord Jesus Christ was born, Herod the Great, who was the king of Judea, began a 46-year project. It took him 46 years. You can read that in John 2, verse 20. It took him 46 years to renovate and to expand the temple that Nehemiah had rebuilt. And Herod not only doubled the size of the temple, but he surrounded it with a retaining wall <clears throat> and with gates. Now, this second temple renovation and expansion is often called Herod's Temple. Sixty-six years after the Lord Jesus made his prediction right here in Matthew 24, not one stone left upon another. Sixty-six years later, that temple and Jerusalem were utterly destroyed. The Jews led a revolt against Rome, and Rome came and occupied Jerusalem. And four years later, in 70 A.D., both Jerusalem and its temple were totally destroyed just as the Lord Jesus has predicted. And so, uh, still reviewing, as I mentioned in the last study, there are seven facts to remember that will help us to understand the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and eventually the destruction of the entire world. Number one, this is taken from the 37th verse of Matthew chapter 23, Jerusalem has utterly rejected the prophets sent unto them. That's what he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stone them which are sent unto thee. Number two, in rejecting the prophets, they rejected the God who sent those prophets, from verse 37. Number three, in rejecting the God who sent those prophets, they rejected their Messiah, who was the last prophet sent to them. From the 38th verse, number four, in rejecting their Messiah, they cursed themselves. 
your house is left unto you desolate. And from verse 39, and cursing themselves, they sealed their fate. You shall not see me again until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Then when we get to chapter 24, the first two verses, in sealing their fate, they not only sealed the fate of Jerusalem, but they sealed the fate of the temple also. He said this temple is going to be thrown down with Jerusalem. It's all going to be leveled to the ground. And then in verses 3 through the remainder of the chapter, we see the ultimate destruction of most everything that is in the world. So in the light of sealing their fate, the fate of Israel, and is sealing the fate of the temple, Jesus gives great revelation here concerning the details of their future and the future of the world. Now today, I'm going to continue that theme from last week. We're going to consider two major points today. Number one, the idolatry of the temple. And number two, the answer of God regarding temple idolatry. Now let's talk, let me talk to you about the idolatry of the temple. You see, Israel had made the temple itself an object of worship rather than the God of the temple. When Solomon built that temple, you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 8. When Solomon built that first temple, he dedicated it to the God of Israel. And you can read his, his dedication prayer, his dedicatory prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, we find that the Lord spoke to Solomon, and he gave him specific answers to his prayer of dedication, 1 Kings chapter 9. <clears throat> to sum up what the Lord told Solomon, he said, Solomon... I'm pleased with what you've done, and I'm going to honor your request. He said, first, I will receive the temple as especially set aside for me. I will hallow this house. That's 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. Number two, I will confess the temple as my house on earth. Verse 3, I will put my name there, 1 Kings 9, 3. Number three, he said, my heart and my eyes, my eyes will be upon this house and my heart will be there perpetually, verse three. But then in verses four through nine, he said, all that he has promised Solomon was conditioned upon obedience. And as we know, before the end of his life, Solomon, who was supposed to have been the wisest man on earth, became the biggest fool. A man that has 700 wives is a fool. <laughs> he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the scripture says that his wives, he married wives from all kinds of people and all kinds of religions. And it said his wives pulled his heart away from the Lord his God. And upon his death, the kingdom split immediately. So Solomon did not walk in obedience to the Lord as the Lord told him he must do because before the end of his life, Solomon and Israel had forgotten all they'd promised. And yet, here's the dangerous thing. 
Yet they continued to think that the temple earned them special significance with God. What happened here in the United States after 9-11? Why, the churches were packed. People were on pews. It's standing room only. In the seventh inning of the baseball game, God bless America. It's been a few years since that, hasn't it? And look at these churches today. A greater number than ever before are leaving the churches. Many churches are in very serious trouble. Very serious trouble. This is what happened to Israel. They continued to think that the temple, which they had, earned them special significance, special favors with God because they had that temple. So walking with God was replaced by ritual and ceremony. You know, observe Passover. Celebrate what's being celebrated just in the last few days here by the Jewish people. Hanukkah. Fast on the Day of Atonement. Or if you're not a Jew, just go to Mass. Go to church. Go to confession. Go forward and rededicate your life. Walk an aisle and be saved. Walking with God was replaced with ritual and ceremony. Number two, talking to God. Walking and talking to God became replaced with religious prayers. Just say five Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys. Just pray the sinner's prayer. You know, if, if I repeat after you, you say, now, Bill, I want you to say this after me. I am a millionaire. I say, I am a millionaire. Does that make me a millionaire? And a person saying, I am a sinner, doesn't make him a sinner. Everybody is a sinner, but they're not a sinner in their own eyes. So today, the sinner's prayer has replaced really seeking the Lord or going down to the altar. Worshiping God became replaced, was replaced with observing religious holidays. Just go to the temple on the religious holidays. Go on the Sabbath days. Go on Sunday. Give the Lord a little bit of your money every once in a while and a little bit of your time when you aren't too busy. Does that sound like the United States? You know what Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah chapter 7? He rebuked Israel for having this attitude. Let me read what he said. Jeremiah 7. You can read the first four verses, but I've just got one little quote here. Change the way you're living and the things you're doing and stop believing those deceitful words. We are safe. This is the Lord's temple. This is the Lord's temple. This is the Lord's temple. He says that three times, just like I've read it. Jeremiah chapter 7. Martin Luther in the 15th century turned organized religion on its head. He marched up to the revered Castle Church of Wittenberg, Germany, and posted 95 theses or propositions to be discussed openly using the Bible rather than the church tradition for answers. And just like the Jews of Solomon's day and the temple defenders of Jesus' day, 
the leaders of the church in Martin Luther King's day had turned the truth into fables and fairy tales and worshiped the church rather than the savior of the church. And this parallels what the Jews had done in the days of Jesus. By the time our Lord Jesus Christ was born, the Jews had turned the temple into a place of business, selling animals to be offered to God as sacrifices. We looked at it last week, but if you'd like to turn back to Matthew 21, it's just two or three chapters back. Matthew 21, verse 12 Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them who were selling and bought in the and buying in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said, it is written, my house should be called the house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. What, did, what has happened? Well, it turned the church into a merchandising mart. The Gospel of Mark tells us... You check this out yourself. Mark chapter 11, verse 16. The gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus wouldn't even allow anyone to carry any merchandise or household items through the temple. He said, this is the house of God. This is not a place that has a CEO for doing business. So to sum up the point, Israel and its leaders have made the temple their golden calf. You remember what the forefathers of the Jews did when Moses went up on the Mount Sinai and he spent 40 days and 40 nights with God receiving his law? What were they doing down at the bottom of the mountain? They said, this guy is not coming back. <laughs> He's not coming back. And they persuaded Moses' brother, Aaron, to make him some golden calves. And when Moses came back down from the mountain, in fact, it was God who said to Moses, Moses, your people, not my people, your people. He said, they're down there partying. Get out of the way and I'll wipe them out and I'll start over with you. And Moses interceded for them. He prayed for them. When Moses came down from that mountain, they were dancing around those golden calves, and they were saying, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. That's in Exodus chapter 32. Well, by the time Jesus was born, they'd done the same thing with the temple. The temple had taken the place of God. And rather than worship and give glory to the God of the temple, they have exalted the temple to the place of worship. Now they have temple worship. They literally are worshiping this temple. And they still do today. When you go over to Jerusalem today, as I pointed out last week, where do you find people, hundreds of people, going down to the so-called Wailing Wall? Yeah, and they have their Bibles. And this is supposed to be a sign of reverence to God when you're reading this Bible. Have you seen that on the news? And that wall is not even a part of the temple. That wall was not a part of the temple at all. That was one of those retaining walls. But since it's close to the temple, it is revered by people all over the world, and especially the Jews, as the holiest place on the face of the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 24, this temple is going to be destroyed. And what Jesus said was, when this temple is destroyed, it will be a sign and a symbol of judgment. Not a blessing. 
God doesn't destroy something he's blessing. He destroys something that takes his place, which is what happened in this case. So they've done the same thing with the temple. They are worshiping the temple. I'd like for you to look at one passage, if you don't mind. I'll try to quote most of them, but Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Dr. Luke does a good job of combining all of this together in a few verses. Luke, chapter 19, and we'll come right back to uh, Matthew 24. Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. In other words, Luke takes what I've read in chapter 23 and 24 and puts it together. So Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 41, when he was come near, when Jesus was come near the city, he beheld the city and he wept over it. He wept over the city. And he said, if you had known even you, at least in this thy day, the things which belong to your peace. But now they are hid from your eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and surround thee and keep thee in on every side and lay you even with the ground and your children with you and they shall not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he went into the temple and he began to cast out them that sold there and them that bought there, saying, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Do you catch the attitude of the Lord Jesus about this? Certainly, Luke makes that very clear. Very, very clear. So Israel and its leaders have made the temple their golden calf. And so rather than worship God, giving glory to the God of the temple, and I'm sure they didn't realize they're doing this, but they are. They've exalted the temple to the place of worship. They literally worship the temple. Now this temple, Jesus said, this temple <laughs> and Jerusalem with it shall be destroyed. Now listen to me. When Jesus ta started talking about the destruction of the temple, the Jews began to seek a way to destroy Jesus. Don't talk about destroying our temple. We'll destroy you. Today, People are very religious in the United States, but I'm afraid that many people don't know anything at all about the truth as it's manifested in the Scriptures. And I'll tell you, when Jesus hung on the cross and he was suffering for the sins of his people, they brought this matter of the temple back up. Let me read it for you. You can, you can turn to it. It's Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 39. I think it's good for us to read these things instead of me just quoting all of them to you. But Matthew 27, verse 39, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And they passed by and they reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Oh, yeah, you who would destroy the temple. 
and build it again in three days. Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 42, he saved others, but he can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if you'll have him. For he said he was the son of God. He said, I am the son of God. You see, they brought this matter of the temple back up to him while he's nailed to the cross. Amazing. But even though they love their beloved temple, thou that destroyest the temple. Remember we looked at that last week. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. He said, destroy this temple, the temple of my body. It's written in the Gospel of John. But they were such temple worshipers, they brought this up while he was hanging on the cross. But in spite of what they think and what they can do, Jesus' words will come true. And listen to me, friends. If the Lord Jesus Christ promises something, you can believe it. If he promises you eternal life, you can believe him. And one proof of this is that he promises judgment upon Jerusalem and the temple, and his promises were fulfilled to the letter. In concluding today's study, I'd like to talk to you about the one sign that guarantees that all of us do not go to God through the temple or through the church or through any other religious institution or system. I say again, Israel had made the temple an object of worship, and I've dealt with that here in the first few minutes of this study. Rather than the God of the temple, they're still doing this today. And I will explain that in the next study, and then we'll be done with this theme. In today's world, religious leaders have made the organized church with its various and sundry branches and denominations, its methods and means from the sinner's prayer to walk in the aisle for Jesus, they've made all of that the way of salvation. And as I said last week, the biggest draw for modern-day Israel is Jesus. More people go to Israel to see something about Jesus, where he was, where he lived, where he walked, where he was crucified, than anything. If it wasn't for Jesus, Israel would be really broke. And I must say today that Jesus is the biggest draw for the churches and their leaders of the 21st century. Many men and women have become wealthy of selling books and sermons, CDs and DVDs. And they promise you everything from Salvation to health and wealth to healing and heaven. And in answering the disciples' questions posed in Matthew 24, 3. When you look at that again, Matthew 24, he said, I'll tell you the time's coming. Not one stone will be left upon another. It'll all be thrown down. I explained to you last week how that happened. And they said, when will these things be? Verse 3, And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the eon, the age of the world? What's the first thing Jesus says? 
Verse 4. Don't let anyone deceive you. That's the first thing he said. I'm convinced that multitudes are deceived. So we've looked at temple worship now, temple idolatry. Now let's look at God's answer to temple worship. And I do hope you have your Bibles. If you'd like to, you can turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. It's in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9. If you're not familiar with these books, just look in the table of contents and find the page number. Let's see if you can find the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Now in Solomon's temple, there was a room called the Holy Place. And then there was another room called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26. Now the entrance to the Holy Place was by means of a curtain called a veil, V-E-I-L. Some spell it V-A-I-L. The entrance into the Holy Place was through a veil. The purpose of that veil was to separate the people from the holy presence of God. Only the priests could go into the holy place. You may remember when Moses requested of God to see him, Exodus chapter 33. God said, no man can see me and live. So there's a, there's a, a curtain into the holy place. Now, the holy place, I'll give you the dimensions in just a moment, it was separated from the holy of holies by a second curtain. So, let's stop here, and if you've got Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, the first covenant had two ordinances of divine service, two ordinances, two rooms, holy place, holy of holies, and a worldless sanctuary. There was a tabernacle. Now, let me make this comment to you. When Israel was delivered from Egypt, and they were wandering in the wilderness, they had what's called a tabernacle. It was a movable tent. Once they got into the promised land, they didn't use the tabernacle anymore. They built a temple. Solomon built the temple. Okay? But the tabernacle was a movable, it was an amazing thing. Each group set up certain things. Uh, when I was a little boy, I would see the circus come in town. And I would watch them set up those tents and set up those. It was absolutely amazing. It was kind of like this with Israel. Everybody had a job to do, and it would come up in no time flat. And when it was through, they'd break it down and travel as the Lord told them to travel. So here in Hebrews 9, he says there was a tabernacle made, verse 2. I'm reading from the King James Version, so you might have a different uh, translation. The first, that is the first room to talk about now, which is the holy place. In this first room, there was a candlestick, the table of the showbread, uh, uh, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and then verse 2, after, that is, you go through a veil now into the holy of holies, you go through the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the most holy place, or the holy of holies which had, verse 4, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. You remember what the Ark of the Covenant was? Just a little square box. Had a golden lid on top of it. 
and uh, had two angelic creatures whose wings almost touched. And God said, right in between that little space where those wings almost touch, that's where I'll meet you. <laughs> the great God of the universe that can't be contained in the universe said, I'll meet you right there. All right. So he says it had the golden censer, verse 4, the Ark of the Covenant, that little box that originally had Aaron's rod that budded. It had the copy of the law. Uh, and it had manna that fell from heaven originally. It was overlaid with gold, verse 4, wherein in it was the golden pot that had the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. What I just said. Copy of the law. And over it, over that little lid on that little box, it was only about three feet long, were these cherubims, these angelic creatures of glory shattering the mercy seat. The lid on the box was called the mercy seat. And that mercy seat is translated in the New Testament, propitiation. When you're asking God to be merciful to you, you're appealing to the mercy seat. Okay? Of which now we cannot speak particularly. All right, now let's stop there for just a minute. So you've got a curtain. You go through the curtain into the holy place. You've got a second curtain, and you go through that curtain into the holy of holies. And these two veils or these two curtains were made from blue, purple, and scarlet dyed yarns woven with fine twine linen. Significance in all of that, but we don't have time this morning. The holy place was 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. When you walk through the curtain into the most holy place, it was a 15-foot cube. 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, 15 feet deep. Overlaid with pure gold. The holy place had the table called the, the table of showbread. The table of God's presence. You can read about this in Exodus 25. It had the golden lampstand. And it had the altar of incense. Read about that in Exodus 30. And then you went through that veil separating the most holy place from the holy place. Now, the most holy place was the room into which the Lord would descend to meet with His people through their representative. Listen to me. Nobody but nobody could go into the Holy of Holies but the high priest, and he could only go in there once a year. That was on the Day of Atonement. Remember when you had our study on atonement? I told you the English word atonement at A-T- one, O-N-E, meant, at one meant. It's translated reconciliation in the New Testament. The atonement is the thing that took God and his people who are separated and reconciled them. At one meant. Okay? 
So only the high priest could go into that place. He had to be dressed a certain way. He had a crown up here, a plate up here that said holiness unto the Lord. And everywhere he turned, it said holiness unto the Lord. Holiness unto the Lord. God is holy. You know, read Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah had that vision. He said, I saw God on his throne, and I saw all these angelic creatures. And they were all saying one to the other, holy, 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 holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now see, all of this stuff of respect and reverence for God, we've lost that in the United States. Now Jesus is just, you know, he, Jesus is just my buddy. He's my friend, you know. I walk with Jesus. No, He's the Lord of glory. He's the Son of God. He's the soon-coming King. So... This high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year to represent his people. God would meet with his people through their representative. Nobody else could go into that room, and the Lord would come down and meet with the high priest. The most holy place indicated, as I've already said, the absolute sovereignty, sovereign holiness of God, the God of Israel, and he went in with what? All right, you got your Bibles open to Hebrews 9? Look at verse 18. He went in with the blood of bulls and goats. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18. The first testament was dedicated not without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, verse 19, according to the law, he took the blood of bull, of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled, verse 21, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels in that tabernacle. But almost all things in the law are purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So the high priest goes in there with the blood of bulls and goats. So once again now, how do you get into that holy place? You've got to go through a curtain. How did the high priest get into the holy of holies? He had to go through a curtain, a veil. Now, this little veil was not something you've got over your three by five window in your home. This veil was 60 feet high. How, how high is this right here? Y'all know? You have me remember? About 50, 60 feet. Those veil, would, you could put it up there in the apex and it would reach to the floor. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. So it was about at least uh, probably to the middle of the aisle from the end of the pew, from the ceiling. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. I read that a team of horses probably could not pull it apart. Now, I want you to stay here, but I want you to, I'm sorry for making you go back and forth, but I want you, this is very important. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 27. This is a, this is a teaching lesson today rather than a preaching lesson. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to just keep your 
keep your marker there in the Hebrews 9, because we're going to go back to that. But Matthew chapter 27. Okay. Matthew 27. Look at verse 39. I read part of this a while ago. Jesus is on the cross, and they're passing by, wagging their heads. Verse 39, verse 40. Thou that destroyest the temple, build in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41, likewise the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and the elders said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if you'll have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The thieves were crucified. They were saying the same thing. Now watch verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, what time would that be? That would be 12 noon. The Jewish day begins at 6 in the morning. Six hours later is 12 noon. So at 12 noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's 3 in the afternoon. Now I believe that in those three hours, this is when our Lord was paying for our sins. Now, but watch this, verse 46, and about the ninth hour, that's about six in the afternoon, about three in the afternoon, I'm sorry, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, laba sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why do you think he said, my God, my God? I think, he, I think the first, my God refers to the Father, and I think the second, my God, refers to the Spirit. That's what I think. You can do some studying on that. <laughs> Watch this now. Some of them that stood there, verse 47, when they heard that, they said, he's calling for Elias. He's calling for Elijah. And they took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on the reed and gave him a drink. And somebody else said, no, leave him alone, leave him alone. Let's see whether Elijah will come or not. Now watch this. Verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, what did he say with that loud voice? He said, it is finished. We find that in the other Gospels. Verse 51, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks were broken to pieces. The veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, my friends, <laughs> I don't even have enough time this morning to tell you what I'd like to tell you, but when a father lost his firstborn son, as a sign of mourning, he would tear his clothes from the top to the bottom, which was a sign that his son had died. And when the Son of God died, his father in heaven tore that veil in the temple, and it was a sign that his firstborn had died. But more importantly, it was a sign that you will no longer approach me through the temple and its sacrifices and through the high priest. You will approach me now through my son. 
That torn veil says the law is done. The prophets are done. Ritual and ceremony is gone. The temple is gone. The priesthood, all of these things, gone. Now you'll approach me by my son if you're going to be received at all. Now back in Hebrews chapter 9. You need to remember that passage in Matthew. Hebrews chapter 9. The high priest went into that Holy of Holies time and time and time again. Let's look at Hebrews 9 verse 7. Into the second, that's the Holy of Holies, went the high priest alone once every year and not without blood whence he offered for himself and for the errors or the sins of the people. The Holy Spirit was signifying through this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while that tabernacle was still standing. And he says all of this is a figure, a figure. Verse 10, that stood in meats and drinks and many different kinds of washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. The Reformation here is not the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. This is the Reformation that I just described to you when the law ended, when that veil was torn. Okay, but Christ, verse 11, has become a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not one made with hands, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place in heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The high priest went in there with a little bowl, and he had the blood of these animals. And he had to sprinkle it on things. But Christ went into the real Holy of Holies, of which the tabernacle was only a figure or a type or a picture. He went into the very presence of God, and he didn't go in with the blood of animals and goats. He went in with his own blood. With his own blood, he went into heaven, into the Holy of Holies. There to make intercession for all that come unto God by him. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. Neither by the blood of bull, of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once. Okay, how often did the high priest have to enter in? Every year. Every year on the Day of Atonement. Because the blood of animals can never take away the sins of human beings. So they had to go in there every year, time and time again, every year. But when Jesus went in, he went in there one time. And he offered one sacrifice that got the job done. By his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And he goes on to say, look, if the blood of bulls and goats has such glory about it, what do you think about the blood of Christ? What is the blood of Christ? Well, read your Bible. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 says that the blood of Christ is the blood of God. I'm told 
that we get our blood supply from our fathers. I don't know, Dr. Foster, whether that's right or wrong, but that's what I'm told. But the blood that was in Christ was the blood of God. Paul told the, the, the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, you're redeemed with the blood of God. Acts 20, 28. So he says, how much more, verse 14, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall he purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He is the mediator, verse 15, of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under that first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Where there's a testament, there must be a testator. You know what that means? Verse 16 means you, you write out your last will and testament, right? When does it become effective? It becomes effective upon your death. So God had a last will and testament, and it did not become effective until the death of the testator, who is Christ. Okay? Well, we need, to, we need to stop, but I want to end by telling you this. The torn veil teaches us, you go back and study Hebrews 9, you'll find it fascinating. The torn veil tells us, number one, no longer do we approach God by means of human priest and animal sacrifices or through a temple that men have made but through Jesus, who is the door. What did he say in John chapter 14? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. What did he say in John chapter 10? I am the door of the sheep. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. Number two, when the veil was torn, it's very important, when that veil was torn, God Almighty left the temple, never again to dwell in a temple made with human hands. Number three, this is why the temple was destroyed for the final time in 70 A.D., just as Jesus had predicted. You know why? Because after Jesus died, the Jews continued to try to access God through the temple, through those sacrifices. They still were offering these sacrifices. They were still offering the blood of, of, of bulls and goats and calves. They were still going through a, a high priest while the high priest of Israel had a hand in the death of God's son. And because they were still doing that, God wiped the whole thing out in 70 A.D. So that the Jews would not have a temple. They would not have a priest. In the destruction of Jerusalem, the priestly line was destroyed. They had to, you have to determine who a priest is. You can't just have anybody be a priest. They had to be an ancestor of Aaron. 
So the Jews continued to go through the temple, go through the priests, go through the animal sacrifices to gain acceptance with God. And so God destroyed the whole thing. All right, last passage now. Hebrews 9. <laughs> and we're through. Hebrews 9. <clears throat> as long as that temple stood, it signified the continuation of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, I should say, the Old Covenant of law and priest and animal sacrifices. That's Hebrews 9, verses 8 and 9. The Holy Spirit was signifying that the way into the holiest of all, not the Holy of Holies, but the Holy of Holies in heaven, the holiest of all, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. And so that tabernacle and that temple were destroyed. When that veil was torn, the way to the Father through the temple was abolished, and the new way through the Lord Jesus was opened. Now, Hebrews 10, Hebrews chapter 10. We can now enter into the Holy of Holies in heaven, through Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. That veil, in other words, inside of the man Jesus was the glory of God. And his flesh covered that glory. Only one time did he manifest. He took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And he said he kind of just pulled away a little bit of that glory and revealed it to them, and they fell on their faces. And Peter talks about it in his epistle. So God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. And verse 14, and the Word that was with God, the Word that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1. And we beheld his glory. E.W. Johnson used to say that unsaved people can see everything that saved people can see but one thing. E.W. E. in his own inimical way would say, they can't see the glory. <laughs> they can't see the glory. The glory of God is in the Lord Jesus Christ that glory was covered while he was here because he came here as the Lamb of God. He came here as a servant. He came here as the servant king. But when he comes again, he's coming as the Lion of Judah. He's not coming as the servant king. So now we can enter into the Holy of Holies in heaven through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the veil represented the body of Christ. And Jesus is not only, one more passage, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, 
Jesus is not only our atoning sacrifice, he is our high priest. He offered the atoning sacrifice, which was his body. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, since we have a high priest and since we have a sacrifice, let us come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. My goodness alive. I mean, I've just hit the high points here. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he said, it is finished, God tore that veil 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, four inches thick. I mean, there wasn't anybody up there on the ladder. <laughs> he tore that thing. And by that, he said, now the way to me is open, not only to Jews and Israel, but to Gentiles, to whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. Now, what the scripture said? That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, thanking you for revealing just a little bit of this great truth of our salvation. We're so thankful. That our salvation is not tied up in ritual and ceremony and laws and don't do this and do that. But we have a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ who is also our high priest. He is also our sin offering. He offered himself unto thee. And then went into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God, there to await the day when all of his enemies become his footstool. We thank you that you have worked in our minds and in our hearts and given us faith that we have come to him. We trust in him. He is our righteousness. He is our acceptance. We have no confidence in ourselves, in our church, in our church membership, or anything else. All of our confidence is in him. Thank you for this good news the gospel, which is through our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen.